Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 129, The Miracle of Ether. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're talking about the innovation of ether in the treatment of pain, particularly for those undergoing surgical procedures. Many believe that this technique was pioneered at MGH under the famous ether dome, but history tells us a different origin story. Before we continue with the show, we want to thank everyone who has contributed to our Patreon campaign. We love that podcasts are free to listen to, but that doesn't mean they're free to produce. Our monthly expenses include web hosting and security, online audio tools to clean up our recordings, and the service that hosts our podcast feed. If you'd like to help us offset our costs and break even over the long term, please consider supporting us on Patreon for as little as $2 per month. You'll get special rewards at the $2, $5, and $10 monthly levels. And you'll help us deliver a high-quality show. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Wicked Victorian Boston by Robert Wilhelm. Boston has a fairly stuffy reputation. We are, after all, the city that once outlawed Christmas in an effort to cut down on the amount of fun being had. And it isn't all in the past. Visitors to our stately city will be shocked to find out that happy hour isn't very happy, thanks to the lack of $3 margaritas. But our listeners know that Bostonians have not been afraid to riot, canoodle on the Charles, or gamble on rat fights in the North End. Wicked Victorian Boston details our lesser-known and sordid history. The History Press, publisher of the book, tells us, Victorian Boston was more than just stately brownstones and elite society that graced neighborhoods like Beacon Hill. As the population grew, the city developed a seedy underbelly just below its surface. Illegal saloons, prostitution, and sports gambling challenged the image of the Puritan city. Daughters of the Boston Brahmins posed for nude photographs. The grandson of President John Adams was roped into an elaborate confidence game. Reverend William Downs, a local Baptist pastor, was caught in bed with a married parishioner. Author Robert Wilhelm reveals the sinful history behind Boston's Victorian grandeur. We'll share an excerpt to whet your appetite. Victorian Boston was a battlefield in the war for the souls of men, with the forces of righteousness battling sin at every turn. Throughout the chapters of Wicked Victorian Boston, two names recur, their actions and words depicting the two sides of the moral war. On the side of darkness was Bose Cobb, an African-American saloon keeper whose dance hall was a center of depravity and temptation. And on the side of light was Reverend Henry Morgan, an outspoken Methodist minister who investigated Boston's vice firsthand and spoke and wrote in the most alarming terms of Boston's moral decline. These two men were the standard bearers in the war that was won by neither side. Unlike other American cities, most notably New York, Chicago, and New Orleans, that seemed to revel in wickedness, making no attempt to hide their vices, Boston preferred to sin in secret, speaking and writing of its transgressions reluctantly, and then only to warn the unwary. Compiling a comprehensive history of vice in Victorian Boston would be a daunting task. This book, instead, is an anecdotal account of the characters and events that brought public attention to Boston's sinful side. The Victorian era was hardly the beginning of vice in Boston, and its passing by no means the end. But for a brief time between the iron rule of Puritanism and the violence of 20th century organized crime, 
the city took some quiet joy in being wicked. We'll include a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring an author talk at the Copley branch of the BPL, where author Ronald Dale Carr will discuss his book, Between City and Country, Brookline, Massachusetts, and the Origins of Suburbia. The BPL description of the event is as follows. Since 1945, American popular culture has portrayed suburbia as a place with a culture, politics, and economy distinct from cities, towns, and rural areas. Ronald Dale Carr examines the evolution of Brookline, Boston's most renowned 19th century suburb, arguing that a distinctively suburban way of life appeared here long before World War II. Already a fashionable retreat for wealthy Bostonians, Brookline began to suburbanize in the 1840s with the arrival of hundreds of commuter families and significant numbers of Irish Catholic immigrants drawn by opportunities to work as laborers and servants. In Brookline, the poor were segregated but not excluded altogether, as they would be from 20th century elite suburbs. A half a century later, a distinct suburban way of life developed that combined rural activities with urban pastimes, and a political consensus emerged that sought efficient government and large expenditures on education and public works. Brookline had created the template for the concept of suburbia, not just in wealthy communities, but in the less affluent communities of post-war America. Ronald Dale Carr is a retired reference librarian from the University of Massachusetts Lowell. The event will take place on Wednesday, May 1st, from 6 to 7.30 p.m. And now it's time for this week's main topic. To say that pain management is a serious industry would be a pretty big understatement. I personally have used everything from ice to clove oil to ibuprofen to Percocet. I've also had surgery under general anesthesia. So when people ask me if I would like to travel back in time, I typically say no. But things did get a lot better after October 16, 1846. Our story begins with the founding of Massachusetts General Hospital in 1811. MGH is the third oldest general hospital in the U.S., behind Pennsylvania Hospital in 1751 and New York Presbyterian Hospital's predecessor, New York Hospital, in 1771. John Collins Warren, son of John Warren, professor of anatomy and surgery at Harvard Medical School, and a graduate of the University of Edinburgh Medical School, along with James Jackson, led the efforts to start the Massachusetts General Hospital, which was initially proposed in 1810 by Reverend John Bartlett, the chaplain of the almshouse in Boston. Because all those who had sufficient money were cared for at home, MGH, like most hospitals that were founded in the 19th century, was intended to care for the poor. Here's how MGH describes its origins. Reverend John Bartlett, chaplain of the almshouse in Boston, dreamed of establishing such a hospital which would make state-of-the-art medical care available to the physically or mentally ill while affording improved opportunities for practical medical education. He joined with like-minded doctors and leading citizens to organize a fundraising campaign. Dr. James Jackson and Dr. John Collins Warren were among the foremost proponents of this plan. In 1811, the Massachusetts legislature granted a charter for the incorporation of Massachusetts General Hospital, and fundraising proceeded, donations ranging from $0.25 to $20,000, and including such unusual gifts as a 273-pound sow. In 1816, the trustees bought and renovated an estate in Charlestown, an area that was later absorbed by Somerville, 
for use as the mental illness facility of Mass General. This became McLean Asylum, now McLean Hospital in Belmont. Soon after, a four-acre field in Boston's West End, known as Prince's Pasture, was acquired for the construction of the General Hospital. The original building, the Bullfinch, opened its doors on September 3, 1821, for admission of the first Mass General patient, a saddler with syphilis, which, the records carefully note, he had contracted in New York. For the first time in New England, round-the-clock medical care was available to anyone who sought it. But that treatment came with little comfort. Prior to the 1840s, pain during surgery was managed by attempted hypnosis, or alcohol, if you were lucky. In 1845, MGH hosted a failed attempt at medical advancement. Horace Wells was the first of three children of Horace and Betsy Heathwells, born in 1815 in Hartford, Vermont. His parents were well-educated and affluent landowners, which allowed him to attend private schools in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. At the age of 19 in 1834, Wells began studying dentistry under a two-year apprenticeship in Boston. At age 23, Wells published a booklet, An Essay on Teeth, in which he advocated for his ideas in preventative dentistry, particularly for the use of a toothbrush. In his booklet, he described tooth development and oral diseases, where he mentioned diet, infection, and oral hygiene as important factors. After he completed his dental training in Boston, Wells opened his own office in Hartford in 1836. Between 1841 and 1845, he became a reputable dentist in Hartford, where he had many patients and attracted apprentices, including John Riggs, C.A. Kingsbury, and William Morton. In 1843, Wells and Morton started a practice in Boston, and Wells continued to instruct Morton. John Riggs later became a partner, and Kingsbury became one of the founders of Philadelphia Dental College. Wells first witnessed the effects of nitrous oxide on December 10, 1844, when he and his wife Elizabeth attended a demonstration by Gardner Quincy Colton, billed in the Hartford Courant as a grand exhibition of the effects produced by inhaling nitrous oxide, exhilarating, or laughing gas. During the demonstration, a local apothecary shop clerk, Samuel A. Cooley, became intoxicated by nitrous oxide. While under the influence, Cooley did not react when he struck his leg against a wooden bench while jumping around. After the demonstration, Cooley was unable to recall his actions while under the influence, but found abrasions and bruises on his knees. From this demonstration, Wells realized the potential for the numbing properties of nitrous oxide and met with Colton about conducting trials. The following day, Wells conducted a trial on himself by inhaling nitrous oxide and having John Riggs extract a tooth. Upon a successful trial, where he did not feel any pain, Wells went on to use nitrous oxide on at least 12 other patients in his office. In 1844, Hartford did not have a hospital, so Wells sought to demonstrate his new findings in either Boston or New York. He chose to go to Boston in January of 1845, where he previously studied dentistry and also knew William Morton, his former student and associate. Their practice had dissolved in October of 1844, but they remained on friendly terms. Morton was enrolled in Harvard Medical School at the time and agreed to help Wells introduce his ideas, although Morton was skeptical about the use of nitrous oxide. 
Wells gave a demonstration to medical students in Boston at the Massachusetts General Hospital on January 20, 1845. However, the gas was improperly administered and the patient cried out in pain. The patient later admitted that although he cried out in pain, he remembered no pain and didn't know when the tooth was extracted. Wells described the endeavor in his 1847 publication, A History of the Discovery of the Application of Nitrous Oxide Gas, Ether, and Other Vapors to Surgical Operations. By invitation of Dr. Warren, I addressed his medical class upon the subject. I embraced the opportunity and endeavored to establish the principle that the system, when wrought up to a certain degree of nervous excitement, by any means whatever, would thus be rendered insensible to pain, and would admit of surgical operations being performed without any disagreeable sensations. In proof of this theory, I related my experience in extracting teeth under the influence of nitrous oxide gas, stating that, with one or two exceptions, all on whom I had operated, numbering 12 or 15, assured me that they experienced no pain whatever. And in further proof of the truth of this principle, I cited analogous cases, as the man who is excited by passion, or he who is much intoxicated by liquor, stating that individuals under these circumstances uniformly testify, when wounded, that such injuries were inflicted without pain. I stated also that I was making use of nitrous oxide gas simply because I considered it more harmless than anything else which could be used for this purpose, assuring them that the same result would follow let the nervous system be excited sufficiently in any manner whatever. I remained several days in Boston in order to have an opportunity of administering the gas to a man who was expecting to have a limb amputated, but the operation was postponed. I was then invited to extract a tooth for a patient in presence of the medical class, which operation was performed, but not with entire success as the gas bag was removed too soon, and as the man said he experienced some pain, the hole was denounced as an imposition, and no one was inclined to assist me in further experiments. The audience of students in the surgical theater jeered, Humbug! After the embarrassment from his failed demonstration, Wells immediately returned home to Hartford the next day. Shortly after, he became ill and his dental practice became sporadic. It went downhill from there. On April 7, 1845, Wells advertised in the Hartford Courant that he was going to dissolve his dental practice and referred all his patients to Riggs, the man who had extracted his tooth. Wells then moved to New York City in January of 1848, leaving his wife and young son behind in Hartford. He lived alone in Lower Manhattan and began self-experimenting with ether and chloroform, becoming addicted to the latter. At that time, the effects of sniffing chloroform and ether were not known. On his 33rd birthday, January 21, 1848, Wells rushed out into the street and threw sulfuric acid on the clothing of two prostitutes. He was committed to New York's infamous Tombs Prison. As the influence of the drug waned, Wells's mind started to clear. In despair, he realized the horror of what he had done. Wells requested the guards to escort him to his house to pick up his shaving kit. On January 24th, he then committed suicide in his cell slitting his left femoral artery with a razor after inhaling a dose of chloroform to blot out the pain. As fate would have it, Crawford Williamson Long, a country doctor from Georgia, would have much more success in his efforts to treat surgical pain, yet he received none of the glory. By the age of 14, Long had graduated from school and applied to the University of Georgia in Athens. 
In 1835, at age 20, he received his A.M. degree. He began studies at Transylvania College in the fall of 1836 in Lexington, Kentucky, where he was able to study under Benjamin Dudley, a revered surgeon. He observed and participated in many surgeries and noted the effects of operating without anesthesia. Long transferred to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia after spending only a year at Transylvania, and he was exposed to some of the most advanced medical technology of the time. He received his M.D. from the University of Pennsylvania in 1839. After an 18-month internship in New York, Long returned to Georgia where he took over a rural medical practice in Jackson County in 1841. Long observed the physiological effects of ether during ether frolics, which were exactly what they sound like, parties where physicians and pharmacists provided ether for enjoyment. It was common to see people knock into things, fall over, and otherwise hurt and bruise themselves but not feel pain. Applying this to his practice, Long used ether for the first time on March 30, 1842, to remove a tumor from the neck of a patient, James M. Venable, a fellow frolicker. He administered ether on a towel and simply had the patient inhale. He performed many other surgeries using this technique during the next few years, introducing it to his obstetrics practice as well. Long subsequently removed a second tumor from Venable and used ether as an anesthetic in amputations and childbirth. Despite his continued successful use of ether as anesthetic, Long did not immediately publish his findings. He fully understood the significance of his innovation, but he had several reasons for delaying publication, which Roger Thomas explains in an article in Smithsonian. First, he noted that although he was not a believer in hypnotism, he needed more cases to ensure that somehow the patient had not self-hypnotized. In his small country practice, it took several years to accumulate sufficient evidence. Second, when Long read of Morton's claim of the first use of ether, he felt it was prudent to see if other claims would be forthcoming that predated his. Third, he finally accumulated enough cases, including controls. In one case, three tumors were removed from a patient on the same day. Tumors 1 and 3 were removed without ether, and tumor 2 with ether. Only the removal of tumor 2 was painless. But if you snooze, you lose. And some guy from Boston named William Morton might steal your thunder. Born in Charlton, Massachusetts, William T.G. Morton was the son of James Morton, a miner, and Rebecca Needham Morton. William found work as a clerk, printer, and salesman in Boston before entering Baltimore College of Dental Surgery in 1840. After graduating in 1842, he began his apprenticeship and then his business with Wells. In 1843, Morton married Elizabeth Whitman. Her parents objected to Morton's profession and only agreed to the marriage after he promised to study medicine. In the autumn of 1844, he entered Harvard Medical School and attended the chemistry lectures of Charles T. Jackson, who introduced Morton to the anesthetic properties of ether. Morton then left Harvard without graduating and began developing a technique to administer ether during surgery. With the help of MGH surgeon Henry Jacob Bigelow, Morton persuaded John Collins Warren to allow him to try his technique on a surgical patient. The trial took place in the Ether Dome on October 16, 1846. The patient was a young printer named Gilbert Abbott who had a vascular neck tumor. 
This was a delicate procedure, and Abbott had to be tied to his chair so that he wouldn't choke on his own blood. Morton used a newly developed apparatus, later called the Morton Etherizer, to deliver the ether vapors, holding the mouthpiece to Abbott's lips and instructing him to breathe deeply and slowly. Abbott fell into an unconscious, sleep-like state within three to four minutes, and did not react when Morton made the first incision in his neck for the surgery. During the surgery, Warren noted that the blood of the patient was very dark, and thought that the anesthesia might be producing its effect through carbonization of the blood, a remark which was met with a burst of applause. Upon awakening after the surgery, the patient announced that he had felt a scratching sensation but no pain. John Collins Warren turned to the observers and proclaimed, Gentlemen, this is no humbug. Bigelow immediately published an article describing the event, and the news quickly traveled to Europe and other parts of America. So, to whom do we give credit for this miraculous medical advancement? Wells, Jackson, Morton, and Long each claimed credit for the innovation of using ether as an anesthetic. A month after the demonstration, a patent was issued for lethion, although it was widely known by then that the inhalant was ether. The medical community at large condemned the patent as unjust and illiberal in such a humane and scientific profession. Morton assured his colleagues that he would not restrict the use of ether among hospitals and charitable institutions, alleging that his motives for seeking a patent were to ensure the competent administration of ether and to prevent its misuse or abuse, as well as to recoup the expenditures of its development. Morton's pursuit of credit for and profit from the administration of ether was complicated by the competing claims of other doctors, most notably his former mentor, Dr. Jackson. Morton's own efforts to obtain patents overseas also undermined his assertions of philanthropic intent. Consequently, no effort was made to enforce the patent, and ether soon came into general use. In December of 1846, Morton applied to Congress for a national recompense of $100,000, but this too was complicated by the claims of Jackson and Wells as discoverers of ether, and so Morton's application proved fruitless. He made similar applications in 1849 1851, and 1853. And all failed. He later sought remuneration for his achievement through a futile attempt to sue the United States government. Long did not publish any of his findings until seeing a December 1846 issue of the Medical Examiner about Morton, who claimed to have used ether as an anesthetic. Long then began to record his findings and write his account of the discovery. He also collected notarized letters from former patients, but after presenting his findings to the Medical College of Georgia, he discovered two others also claimed to be discoverers, Horace Wells and Charles Jackson. When Long entered his claims, this controversy was already in process. An excerpt from Long's first publication addressing the controversy states, A controversy soon ensued between Mr. Jackson, Morton, and Wells, in regard to who was entitled to the honor of being the discoverer of the anesthetic powers of ether, and a considerable time elapsed before I was able to ascertain the exact period when their first operations were performed. Ascertaining this fact, through negligence I have now permitted a much longer time to elapse than I designed, or than my professional friends with whom I consulted advised, but as no account has been published, so far as I have been able to ascertain, 
of the inhalation of ether being used to prevent pain in surgical operations as early as March 1842. My friends think that I would be doing myself injustice not to notify my brethren of the medical profession of my priority of the use of ether by inhalation in surgical practice. Prior to Morton's public demonstration of ether, he had supposedly met with Jackson, who was known to attempt to steal others' inventions, to discuss questions surrounding anesthesia. It is at this meeting where, supposedly, Jackson had suggested to use ether as a means of alleviating surgical pain. Morton had previously experimented with ether, but never on a patient. Jackson and Morton tangled in a bitter legal dispute and pamphleteering war that lasted 20 years. In 1868, Morton read a newspaper item asserting that Jackson deserved the lion's share of credit. Morton became feverish, threw himself into a pond in New York Central Park, and died probably from a stroke soon thereafter. Jackson died at McLean Asylum. In 1879, a year after Long's death, the National Eclectic Medical Association declared that he was the official discoverer of anesthesia. To learn more about ether, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 129. We'll have a link to Wells' publication, A History of the Discovery of the Application of Nitrous Oxide Gas, Ether, and Other Vapors to Surgical Operations. We'll also link to the Crawford Long Museum and the Smithsonian article we quoted. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Wicked Victorian Boston, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still one of the best ways to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week with an interview with Earl Taylor of the Tide Mill Institute to talk about, you guessed it, Tide Mills. <laughs>